This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Every year, we put together a week of conversations suggested by you. For today's installment of our Listener Picks series, we're discussing how to be a good neighbor. You've probably heard about it from some familiar voices. Don't worry, Ernie. I'm on Oscar Rap. You'll find him. You will? We will. Of course we will. We're Ernie's friends and neighbors, and good neighbors help each other. But what does it really mean to be a good neighbor? That was Heather's suggestion for us. Neighbors are fundamental to developing our identities as people and as parents and as partners. The personal nature of having a neighbor who is experiencing as close to reality as you are, as possible, at the same time that you are. I fear that the loss of that connection with real, quote-unquote, normal people and how we learn from them is more important to who we become as people and as part of the future society than the other ways that it seems like we are developing identities lately. Heather, thanks for suggesting today's show. So does it really matter if we connect with our neighbors and how can we try to build those bridges? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our conversation after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's bring in our guests. Seth Kaplan is a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society One Zip Code at a Time. Seth, welcome to 1A. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Jen. Also with us is Emma Seppala. She's a research scientist and psychologist. She's also the faculty director at Yale's School of Management and author of Sovereign, Reclaim Your Freedom, Energy, and Power in a Time of Distraction, Uncertainty, and Chaos. Emma, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. Well, I'd love to hear from each of you how you define what it means to be a good neighbor. Emma, I'll come to you first. You know, there's research showing that um, the way we interact with others can either sort of amplify our energy or deplete us. And I think we probably all know people when we're around them after we leave their presence, we feel a little more tired. And there's others where we feel just more enthusiastic, more alive. And neighbors offer this 
this opportunity for these micro moments of, um, of, of positive connection, of, of an energizing and life-supportive connection with one another. And um, when you have those kinds of relationships with all of the, the people or many of the people that live around you, it also creates a feeling of security, um, of safety, and of, of friendliness and, and um, of belonging. And we know um, from research that that is one of our greatest needs after food and shelter is a positive social connection with others. Seth, what about you? What is your definition of a good neighbor? Well, a good neighbor is someone when you go and knock on their door to say hello, of course, they're going to be positive and welcoming. But I think it's actually more than that. When I have, um, when I had recently, my wife had to run off to take care of her mother and I needed help with carpool in the morning, I could call on four different neighbors to help me get my kids back and forth to school over a couple of days. So for me, a good neighbor is not just someone who smiles at you, is someone who you can develop. I, I wouldn't say a friendship. You don't need friendships as much as you need. Friendships are great, but you need a lot of trusting, supportive relationships that surround you as if you're like in a security blanket. I feel in my neighborhood a sense of joy, a sense of security, because I know I can knock on the door if I need something. I know if I have some emergency, I can run down the street and someone will be there to help me, whatever it is. So a neighbor is someone who's not just positive, but someone who makes you feel welcome, someone who's there if you call out for assistance, someone who's just positive and you get you get loads of small daily benefits. And you also get a, such a sense, I think um, Emma said it very well, you have a sense of belonging, a sense of willingness to help others because others are willing to help you. I can imagine someone listening right now, Emma, and saying, well, I, I do have that. I have it with my friends and family. I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I need help. And someone's there. What's special about the relationship you can have with a neighbor, someone with whom you're, you're in close proximity? I think, you know, hopefully, you know, all of us have at least one person we can call on the phone. Um, and yet there's, um, there's also a, a loneliness when you are living, um, you know, amongst what seem to be strangers. And we know, you know, from research that loneliness is, is uh, very painful. Um, in fact, um, it can sometimes even uh, activate parts of the brain that are similar to physical pain, that those feelings of disconnect from others. And um, there's something about a, a an actual interaction. And, and as Seth said, where you feel like there's a sense of connection to the people near you, it, it creates this net, this network of, um, of feelings of safety, but also this opportunity to connect face to face, to have that empathic resonance, which is, you know, in psychology, we talk about how when you, when you look at someone, and you're interacting with them in a positive way, you have this physiological resonance where your even your heart rate and your your breathing can sync when you're having a connection with someone. That that can't that can you know it can happen over the phone, but not it's not the same as in person. So there's something really special about that. Well, Seth, what are the key elements that make up a neighborhood? Well, a, a neighborhood. Not every one of us lives in a neighborhood. I think one of the challenges we as a country have today is that so many of us live in places that are not neighborhoods. There's no center. There's not a really strong sense of identity, belonging. Uh, you may have lots of nice houses and you have maybe some nice pathways to walk, but there's no activity and there's no institution that brings us together. In the ideal, in the ideal world, the way we all used to live, the way people have lived, I think from time immoral, 
is an, a neighborhood has a beginning and an end. A neighborhood has a center. A neighborhood has an identity. A neighborhood has could be places to worship, places to shop, places to meet, places to send kids to school. So you have all these things going on and they're overlapping and you're meeting people on so many of these platforms or, or institutions or places that you just organically develop trust, you organically develop relationships, and it just creates a sense of community and a sense of being there for each other. Today, too few of us live in places that can actually become neighborhoods, and therefore we become neighborhoods uh, naturally, so we have to be so much more intentional. That's why it's important for us to go out the door and look down our street and see who can we connect to. And we have to be very intentional about looking for opportunities in whatever form they may be to connect with neighbors because neighbors can do so much for us that just distant friendships cannot. What other traits do you see in a healthy and strong neighborhood beyond having these places to gather and connect to one another like schools and churches? Oh, again, I think it's this idea that you feel some level of common destiny, however thin that is with your neighbors. The sense that this is our place, we share this place together, we, we know each other. Again, you don't necessarily are friends with everybody, but in my neighborhood, I know hundreds of people. I can walk down the street and I can more or less tell you every house, who lives there, what the parents do, if they have kids, where do the kids go to school? If my wife was walking with me, she would probably tell you what's wrong with their kitchen renovation and so on and so forth. And you have this whole experience. And I'll just, I'll just give you... I'll give you an, a, a very specific example. About five, four or five years ago, my oldest, my daughter, was carrying her brother. Her brother was about one year old, one and a half years old. And she, dropped, coming out of the car, dropped him. And his chin fell on the cement. Mm. And it was bleeding. And immediately the parents are panic-stricken. He's crying. Blood's coming from his chin. My wife, much f- faster on her feet than I am, she picked him up and ran down the street. Where did she go? I did not, did not know. She came back a half an hour and he was bandaged up. She went to the closest nurse. So when you're in a neighborhood and people are there for each other and you have this somehow this antenna, who lives where, who could be useful or how can I help other people? And you're always thinking, how do I help them? How might they help me? It's always not like your main thing in your head, but it's sort of there when an emergency strikes you have some sense where to go. And it's because we knew where nurses and doctors live in our neighborhood, we immediately have a place to go to. So I would say a neighborhood is creating this sense of community that people are simply able to help each other, willing to help each other. I would call it a willful interdependence. And you just feel better about yourself and the people around you. And I would say society and country uh, because of that. Let's take a short break here. Coming up, how do healthy neighborhoods lead to healthier communities? And we try to get some inspiration for being a good neighbor by turning to the most iconic neighbor of all time. That's coming up in just a moment. Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Elizabeth. What I think makes a great neighbor is just being there, sharing text messages and phone numbers so the group together as a community can stand strong. Thanks for that, Elizabeth. There's certainly one man who knows a little something about that. This is my friend Jeff Erlinger. He's one of my neighbors here, and I asked him if he would come by today. I'd like to sing that to you and with you. Okay, okay, sure. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. We get so wrapped up in numbers in our society. And the most important thing is that we're able to be one-to-one, you and I, with each other at the moment. If we can be present to the moment, with the person that we happen to be with at the moment. That's what's important. Well, we can't all be Mr. Rogers, and the world has changed quite a bit since we could visit his neighborhood. But what can we learn from one of our most iconic neighbors? Maxwell King is the author of the biography, The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers. Maxwell, welcome to 1A. Good to be with you, Jen. I will confess, as we were listening to the song, um, as we went to break, I found myself... Uh, getting getting misty, uh, and and I heard that song in a, in a way that was different than when I was a child and watching the program, and I heard this real deep call and connect call and and desire for connection from Fred Rogers as he sang. How did he decide what it meant to be a good neighbor? What did it mean to him? Well, as you know, he focused a lot on the idea of neighborhood. Uh, the importance of the concept of neighbors, because for him, it was the most immediate and direct expression of human kindness. And that's really what Fred Rogers cared about, what he focused on as an educator, what he focused on as a a television figure. (coughs) Excuse me. Bless you. Uh, And he grew up in a small town in, in Pennsylvania called Latrobe, and he grew up with neighbors And he grew up with people all around him, shopkeepers, the librarian, uh, the the local barber, people who gave him support. 
And he saw that between his family and those other people, there was this network of support. So when he became uh, an educator and developed his television program, the idea of building it around the concept of, of a neighborhood expressed as best he thought he could uh, the way to be there for people. The, the clip that you just played of Fred talking about the one-to-one -one connection is, I think, um, both the key to understanding him and what motivated him and the key to understand what it was about the idea of a neighbor that uh, attracted him, that, that entranced him, really. And that is um, this, this concept of the most important thing in your life being that one-on-one -on -one connection, particularly a sort of accidental connection you find in a neighborhood where you just bump into somebody. You don't talk about anything important. You just talk about uh, what's on your mind, the weather, the local football team. That kind of thing captured for Fred Rogers the, the, the most immediate and important way to sort of express human kindness and love for your fellow man. You had the opportunity to meet Fred Rogers, and I'm curious what you took away from your one-on-one -on -one interaction with him. Well, it was so interesting because I met him because I was running a big charitable foundation in Pittsburgh that provided some funding for his program. So his staff arranged for me to come in to his office and meet him. And we talked for about an hour and a half. And I expected to talk about his plans for the program, the coming season, to talk about money, the, the grant funding that he needed. We talked for an hour and a half about family. Uh, he asked me hundreds of questions about my family. We found so, a lot of connections in, in, in terms of pl places where, you know, we had vacation cottages that turned out to be about 12 miles apart. And he talked about his family and how he felt about his family. So for an hour and a half, we just talked about family. Most of it was him asking a lot of questions of me and listening, which is the, is the primary way he chose to express his connection with other people. And we never said a word about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, about uh, his production company, uh, or money. <laughs> of course, he did get the grant, of course. <laughs> How do but it was just this very, uh, and it was a very episodic, accidental kind of a conversation, which he loved. How do you think that experience and the experience of writing his biography shapes the way you think and practice being a good neighbor? Well, I think the main thing I learned from Fred, I, I used to be a journalist and then I ran a couple of large foundations and the pace of my life was, was pretty rapid, pretty quick. And the biggest lesson I got from Fred was um, in trying to pursue this idea of one-on-one -on -one connections and being available to one-on-one -on -one connections, the idea was slow down. For Fred, um, you couldn't be available for these one-on-one -on -one connections unless uh, you deliberately tried to slow down and be there, be present, be, be in the moment. I mean, after all, today, our world is even faster paced than it was when Fred was producing his program. But he was very sensitive to this and, and everybody who met with him reported the same thing the sense that when they were with him, time slowed down. Mm. 
So the, the big benefit I thought I got personally was to be conscious every day of trying to slow down enough to be responsive to those ad hoc kind of connections that can be made. I'll tell you a quick story about um, uh, when, when I retired, my wife and I, who had lived in the city in Pittsburgh, moved out to another small town in uh, the Appalachian Mountains in western Pennsylvania. And we got a house with a big porch on the front. And in the warm weather, we, we both sit out there reading and writing and doing whatever we're going to do. And every five minutes, somebody else walks down the street. And every single time they do, uh, we interrupt what we're doing and we have a little bit of a conversation about nothing. It's nothing important. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just whatever it might be the subject of the day. And it's not about issues or politics or managing the town or anything like that. Uh, it might be about the, the, the cat in the neighborhood that somebody's feeding. But what I learned to value about those conversations is there are these just very, very tiny moments, one after another, to connect with another person if you, if you make the effort to be in the moment and be available for those connections. And, and you know, that's what Fred meant when, when, he, when he put the word neighborhood in his program. Mm. Part of what I hear you describing is what, what it seems came very naturally, naturally to him, which is this sort of innate sense of curiosity about people. And it feels like we're in a time when the instinct is maybe to retreat more, just kind of mind your own business, go in the house, shut the door, be in your cocoon, and and not necessarily curious about, like you said, people's politics or or these big ideas, but just curious about how someone is is doing. Did you get a sense of how and why that was? so integral to who he was. Was was it natural to him or was it something that he just practiced doing? The, the latter is the case, Jen. He practiced doing it all his life. When he was a little kid, uh, he was shy. He was lonely. He didn't have any friends. And as he became a teenager, he sort of came to grips with this in a very, very deliberate, intentional way. You know, people think of Fred Rogers as this sweet old guy in a cardigan sweater who's just naturally nice to kids. And it's very much the opposite. He sort of crafted his persona as Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, as Mr. Rogers. And he built it around this idea of paying attention, of listening, of responding to people. Um, he, he became a Presbyterian minister and a lot of his values were grounded in Christianity. But he also became a scholar of all the other religions and philosophies throughout history. And he saw that the element that tied them all together was this idea of responding to other people, showing kindness, showing love. And so he worked on it. He, he, worked, he was very deliberate, very focused about being available and being responsive to people. And actually... He would wake up every morning at 5 a.m. He woke up to read the Bible and pray. But then he would spend about 20 minutes envisioning what was coming in the day ahead of him, who he was going to run into, what he was going to be doing, what, what might be some of these accidental uh, encounters that he would have, and sort of beginning to practice, beginning to train himself to be responsive. So he was quite 
deliberate and intentional about being available to other people. That's Maxwell King. He's the author of the biographies The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers, and American Workman, The Life and Art of John Kane. Maxwell, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. We appreciate it. You bet. Now, I want to make sure that we acknowledge we, we have heard from people who have a slightly different perspective on neighborhood interactions. Matt from Castleberry here. I do not have a relationship with my neighbors. I don't think we would get along as friends, really, so I've just never really interacted with them. Uh, you can very clearly tell some of their political and social ideological leanings by some flags that they have flying and some standees that they have by the front of their house. So I just never really thought I needed to engage. We also heard from Catherine who emails, I'm 75, work full time. As an introvert and a socially shy, awkward individual, I find constant talk of having to have connections to be happy nonsense for people like me. Where I live, the houses are very far apart. I talk with only one neighbor and she watches my cat sometimes. For my other neighbors, we have an occasional wave. I do not need nor want more. So we're hearing two different things, Seth, and I want to first address the feeling that it can be increasingly difficult to connect with people because of differences in ideology or politics. How can people manage that tension? Well, let me let me say two things. Well, first, I, I, I have strong views on just about anything. Don't even talk to me about what we should be eating for dinner. I'm sure I'm <laughs> going to give you a strong opinion. But I am very intentional to not highlight my politics in any way. I do not have bumper stickers. I do not have signs on the street in front of my house, on my lawn. I do not have flags. I have nothing. And it's, it's very intentional because I live in a neighborhood with people have different views. In fact, I don't even want to know their views. I want to know them as people. Again, I don't need to be friends. To think that your neighbors should be your friends, I think that's a bit high of a bar to reach for. What you want to have is enough of a relationship that they can be there for you and you can be there for them and you feel you have some trust and some support. And so I think we definitely do not want to put politics between us and our neighbors. I would hide my politics and if it ever came up, I wouldn't talk about it. We're going to take a quick pause here, still to come with an epidemic of loneliness. How can public leaders step in and try to fix it? That's up next. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Emma, as we've been discussing, there is a distinction between neighborliness and being friends. According to a 2023 Gallup poll, saying hello to at least six of your neighbors increases your well-being index by more than 12 points. First, what is the well-being index? There are many different ways of, of measuring well-being, and that's that's one of them. So that it's just a, a way to to assess um, you know general levels of of, of happiness, um, of uh, contentment. 
And so short of being friends, <laughs> not necessarily having tea together, but just speaking to one another, how does talking to our neighbors contribute to our well-being as individuals? Well, I'm, I'm quite certain that they're talking about what they're referring to is talking uh, in a friendly manner <laughs> in some, even if as, um, you know, Maxwell was sharing earlier about, uh, about Fred Rogers, if, if it's just, or he himself was sharing about himself, these, this uh, banter, meaningless banter, it's still an exchange of um, positive affirmation of the other person. So all of us at our core, you know, after the food, after food and shelter, we want to feel safe. We want to be seen, heard, valued and appreciated. And those little moments of connection that we have with neighbors um, are moments that make us feel that, A, we're not alone, that we're safe, that we're connected to others. Um, and it does build trust. And we know that, um, speaking of the well-being index, you know, Finland often tops um, as the, the happiest country in the world. And when I've, when I've been there and, and talked to, to um, the audiences there, they, they often always say, it's the fact that there's trust. We have trust. And that creates a real sense of security because fundamentally, we want to feel like we're safe and that we have that network around us, a positive network. Seth, I, I, I want to acknowledge, though, that, you know, you mentioned not talking about politics and beliefs. People may assume certain things about you just because of your, how you appear in the world. They make they may make assumptions about your politics or oh, there's a whole list of things they could assume just by looking at you with no signage or bumper stickers or anything at all. So if you feel like you're on the receiving end of those assumptions, it can be really difficult to be open to people. It, it can be difficult to want to have those meaningless conversations that can build the kind of neighbor relationships we've been describing. How do you manage that tension? Well, first, I think, again, we need to be much more intentional with this than we ever were in the past. I mean, our society seems almost designed to isolate ourselves to one another based upon how we've organized the streets, organized the houses, organized the, the, the organ institutions and places to meet. So I, I would say if you are in a place and you feel that your neighbors are somehow reluctant to talk to you or somehow you feel that uh, they may even have some animosity towards you because they have some preconceived notion of who you are or what you stand for, I mean, you have to work even harder. And so I would be, again, if you live in a neighborhood um, you have dozens, if not hundreds of people near you. And therefore, I would be looking for the low-hanging fruit. Are there places where I can go or organizations I can volunteer for or something that I can do where I'm going to meet these people and I'm going to meet them in a place where we're not going to think about who we are or what our politics are, but have a chance to do something with each other. So that would be one thing I'd be looking for. I, and again, you have a lot of people. So if some people, those people up the hill, I think one of your callers said, well, what about people down the hill? Do they think differently about you? So I would be strategic in terms of where I went, who I talked to. And if you really thought that you should have a relationship with people who have those views, I think you, you likely have to make several efforts. You have to show that you're open to them. You have to show that 
they may be against you because they feel you're against them. So you have to make an extra effort so that you're open to them, that maybe you might be helpful to them, that you whatever views they might have of you that you don't hold. So I, I do think there's various strategies that we can adopt, and we have to try to see what fits best in our situation. Gallup data from August 2023 suggests that saying hello and conversing with your neighbors promotes well-being. But a 2023 report from the Department of Health and Human Services stated about half of U.S. adults experienced measurable levels of loneliness. Emma, tell us more about the health consequences of isolation or being less connected with your community. You know, loneliness has been a problem for a really long time. You know, before there was the pandemic, there's an, a loneliness epidemic, and this is across the world, which is why in the in the UK they now have a minister for loneliness, um, and um, the US Surgeon General Vivek Morty, um, he has made that his platform. How do we help people connect? Because um, unfortunately, loneliness leads to um, worse psychological health, um, physical health, and and um, can even impact your your longevity. And we know that the reverse is true, of course, of social connection. People who are feel more positively socially connected to others um, actually live fifty have a fifty percent chance of living longer, recover from disease faster, etc. Um, loneliness also leads to a host of negative emotions, which is if you if you look at you know some some of the the school shooting perpetrators and and other sort of individuals uh, who conducted very antisocial um, and terrible behavior, they often have been people who feel extremely lonely. It, um, it, it, it has a, a host of negative consequences. Um, but what was really interesting to me about this research is that when you look at social connection, this goes back to one of your listeners earlier who said, listen, like I'm an introvert. I'm on my own here. Like, don't bother me with your social mm-hmm. connection. And what I really love about, um, about the research uh, on social connection, and it's many benefits for psychological health, physical health, recovery from disease, longevity, et cetera, is that it has nothing actually to do with just how many people you have in your social circle, but much more to do with how connected you feel on the inside. And that I think gives us a lot of hope, especially, you know, some of us live in urban areas or areas where it's just not possible to connect with others as easily. Or again, we're in, we're introverted, or we have a new baby at home. There's many reasons why we might not be able to socialize much or even meet a lot of neighbors, but um, it's it's that social connection from within. So what I mean by that, um, there have been times, I'm sure for all of us, where we've been in a crowd or maybe a family gathering or somewhere where we felt lonely, lonely in a crowd. That's that's where that expression comes from. Similarly, you could have been sitting at home during the pandemic by yourself, and then all of a sudden you see, you know, there's an earthquake happening in Turkey, or, you know, and you and you suddenly feel like I have to get on online and donate to you know, Doctors Without Borders immediately. You feel that connection to people you've never met, you'll never meet. So that's that's actually kind of the the good news is that it has a lot to do with sort of your internal sense of belonging, which in turn has a lot to do with your sense of well-being. Um, when you're able to take connect with yourself in a way that's positive, that's life supportive, you also naturally will find that it's easier to reach out to others. And this is my, sort of my final point on this is that when we ha- exp- when we um, are really stressed or really in a sort of a negative mind space, it's really hard for us to connect. And yet that's when we'll we kind of need it the most. And yet that those that mind um, our minds in that situation, when we're feeling those negative emotions, is more focused on ourselves. And so when we can do things that help fill our tank, um, take care of our own well-being, those are also the days when, oh, we naturally feel that there's there's more to give. We have, we, we're, we're more likely to go help someone whose groceries dropped on the floor. We, we feel like we have more that we can reach out with towards others. So again, connecting back to that idea of can, when we take better care of ourselves, we can also find that it's easier 
um, to connect with others. And this goes back to, again, the Fred Rogers. Yeah. Um, he was able to be so present, you know, but we're present when we're able to take care of our well-being, meditate, do things like that. Let's get to a few more messages from you. Anne is trying to reach out to her neighbors. My husband and I recently moved to a new town, knowing we wouldn't be outside much during the cold winter months and that people don't always appreciate a random knock at the door. We mailed a card with a wildflower wildflower seed packet to each of our neighbors. We were pleased to receive a Christmas card back from one household and had another couple stop by to say hello. We also heard from Suzanne who emailed, I'm on my own now. My neighbors who have become friends continue to look out for me. I'm very fortunate and thank God for them every day. I'd love to hear from each of you, Emma and Seth, a a small step each of us can take to improve connectivity in our communities and then maybe a bigger policy step that you'd like to see happen. Emma, I'll come to you first. I think remembering that you know, it doesn't have to take a lot of effort or a lot of time. It's those micro moments of positive uplift, of upliftment with another person. Those extensions of the the hellos, the the banter, the the jokes, the kind word, the kind act. Um, and you know, for for because of this loneliness um, that we're dealing with, for some people that might be the first person that smiles or talks to them that day. And uh, we can make a world of difference while also benefiting ourselves. Um, and uh, you know, listening to everybody's ideas, um, I, I was thinking that, uh, you know, when I first moved to the town I'm in, um, there was a newcomers club. And I was thinking, you know, if if there isn't one already, or if then that is something that, you know, someone could take a, the initiate, uh, initiate uh, something like that, where um, bringing, bringing people together, creating community is something that always started with one person, one person's mm-hmm. idea. How do I create more belonging? How do I bring us together? Seth, your thoughts? A great idea, Emma. So I would say two things. First, look out your door. And imagine uh, or see that there's 8, 10, 12 houses near you. I would say uh, try to knock on all those doors and look for places where you can uh, make connections. Look for volunteer opportunities. Look for local institutions. And then on the larger scale, I wish our society as a whole would uh, reimagine the physical landscape that everyone is in a neighborhood and ask what do neighborhoods need to survive and thrive and think harder about the policy implications of that. That's Seth Kaplan. He's a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University and author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society One Zip Code at a Time, and Emma Seppala. She's a research scientist and psychologist. She's also the author of Sovereign, Reclaim Your Freedom, Energy, and Power in a Time of Distraction, Uncertainty, and Chaos. Thanks to you both. Today's producers were Emilce Quiroz and Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Be good to your neighbors. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. One of the most thought-provoking books about the Middle East, Thomas L. Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem, is now available as an unabridged audiobook featuring a new preface read by the author. Find it wherever audiobooks are sold. 
Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.